0: Draw our time at the table of the Lord to an end. Someone has said that reality is everything, or reality is irrelevant, perception is everything. The infamous Stephen Colbert said, facts matter not at all. Perception is everything. It's certainty. I don't know about you, but that seems a little too all-inclusive for me. But I would certainly be prepared to admit that perception is powerful. Think about it. What you see is what you get. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Don't judge a book by its cover. All common sayings that would suggest that perceptions are powerful. Stephen Covey used an illustration in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, to demonstrate this very thing, the power of perception. I trust you received a bulletin when you entered the church this morning, and I'd ask that you take out that little insert, the sermon note insert, and look at the sketch on the back of that insert. Focus on that for just a moment. Looks something like this. Everybody got one? After having done that, have a look at this picture on the screen behind me. What do you see? You see a woman? How old would you say she is? What does she look like? What is she wearing? You'd probably describe a, a woman, maybe in her, around 25 years old, very lovely, rather fashionable, with a petite nose, and, and she's wearing a fur coat. But what if I were to tell you that I see a woman in her 60s and 70s, who looks very sad, has a huge nose, and certainly is not very attractive at all. In fact, she may even be someone that, had you seen her, you may want to offer to help her to cross the street. She looks very feeble. Can you see her? Have a look at this sketch for a moment. focus. And now let's look at the original picture. Can you see both the old woman and the young woman? Here's my point. Our reaction to the women in this picture would be, be determined by which woman we saw. Our perception. Perceptions are powerful. This morning we're going to be focusing on a passage of scripture that deals with perceptions. It's often referred to as the triumphal entry. The importance of this event is found in the fact that it is reported in all four Gospels. John chapter 12. Also in Matthew chapter 21, Mark chapter 11, and again in Luke chapter 19. Clearly, this is an important event in the special revelation of God. So the national anthem has been sung. The the players have taken their positions on the field. It is now time for the opening kickoff to the final week of Jesus' incarnational ministry. In just six days he will die, suspended between heaven and earth, hanging by nails that are driven through his hands and his feet into a wooden cross, between two criminals with Roman guards standing by. In a sense, Jesus is a dead man walking, hardly a triumphal entry. And yet, it is, it is as Jesus walks towards the city of Jerusalem that we discover four very different perspectives of this one who claimed to have been sent by the Father. These different perspectives are displayed in the behavior of the beholders in their actions and reactions, in in their words and in their deeds. You see, perceptions may not be everything, but they are powerful. Perceptions are powerful. Powerful in the way that they shape our actions and our reactions, our words and our deeds. If you're able, I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. I'd like to begin reading for us at verse 12 of John chapter 12. Beginning at verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written of him and that he had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him for this reason also the people went to meet went and, and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good? Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, thank you that you have inspired these scriptures. You have preserved them down through the ages so that we sit here this morning with a reliable copy of your inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and all-sufficient written revelation. Apart from which, we would be lost forever and ever. May we never take this precious gift for granted. And now, Father, we ask that your Spirit would guide us in our studies of this episode in the life of Jesus. May it not merely be an academic exercise, but an encounter with the living and active Word of God, a word that cuts more cleanly than any two-edged sword. It strikes through to the place where soul and spirit meet, to the innermost intimacies of a man's being. It exposes the very thoughts and motives of a man's heart. Indeed, it exposes our perceptions and our misconceptions of Jesus' person and ministry. Teach us, we pray. Do your work in each one of our lives, we pray, so that we become more and more like Jesus, the one in whom you said you are well pleased. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Jesus' so-called triumphal entry incited a variety of responses. Jesus has just left the town of Bethany. Bethany was Lazarus and Martha and Mary's hometown. They were wonderful hosts. Look back at verses 2 and 3 of John chapter 12. So they made him a supper there and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The hospitality of these three seems to illustrate the ministry priorities that we have here at TRCC TRCC, to celebrate, demonstrate, and proclaim the gospel. Mary celebrated Jesus with an extravagant expression of honor and worship. Martha, true to her character, was found demonstrating her faith through acts of service, making sure that everyone in the house had enough to eat. Lazarus gave his full attention to Jesus' proclamation. There you have it. TRCC's ministry trifecta. Celebrate, demonstrate, and proclaim the gospel. In verse 12, we learned that it is the next day, and that would be Sunday, Notice verse 1 of this same chapter. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. Passover is on Friday after sundown. And so you've got Friday, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, Sunday. Notice verses 12 and 13. On the next day, the large crowd who had come the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. I came across this quote in my studies this week that I thought was, was interesting. The scene now shifts from a quiet dinner with a few close friends in the small town of Bethany. We see next a a noisy public parade through the streets of Jerusalem. This was the only public demonstration that Jesus allowed during his earthly ministry. Interesting. From a quiet dinner to a noisy parade And it's the only public demonstration that Jesus allowed during his earthly ministry. This large crowd would would certainly have included a lot of Galileans who made the trip from Jesus' home province of Galilee to celebrate this Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would be for the next seven days. Remember, this feast was not an option. This was one of those three annual festivals that required all Jewish males to appear before the Lord in the temple at Jerusalem. The majority of Jesus' miracles or signs would have been done in the province of Galilee. And the Apostles, John, reports in John chapter 20, verse 3, that they were many. And then listen to how he ends his gospel account. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world would not contain the books that would be written. The end. That's how the gospel account ends. I have to believe that this large crowd that came to meet Jesus included many Galileans who either witnessed firsthand or certainly heard about the many miracles, the signs that Jesus had done in his home province of Galilee. I should mention that there are no reliable reports of how large, what the population, the city of Jerusalem was in the first century. But there are many that would estimate that this city would grow by six times its size during these festivals where Jews were mandated to come to the temple in Jerusalem. Now think about that for a moment. Think of the city of Woodstock, growing by six times its size in a fairly short period of time. Six times. Like it would be an economic boom and a hospitality nightmare long before Jesus was ever born, the waving of palm branches had become a common practice for the nation of Israel. Part of their national celebrations, palm branches, they were a symbol of Israel nationalism, a symbol of victory and peace. Those shouts of Hosanna, well, in Hebrew, it meant save now or Give salvation now. It was a cry from the lips of those announcing the arrival of one who they supposed was a deliverer. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is also taken from Psalm 118. You need to understand that Psalm 118 was part of the halal. Halal means Praise and is a part of the Jewish prayer of praise. It would have been part of their Passover celebrations. In fact, the hallel was said at all of their feasts. The temple choir would either sing or chant the hallel. Begins in Psalm 13 and goes Psalm 113 and goes all the way through to the end of Psalm 118. That is the hallel. Turn with me to Psalm 118 for just a moment. I'd like to read just a short section. And you'll remember that Psalm 18 is the end of the halal because the next psalm, you wouldn't want to read to the end of it during a corporate worship service. It's the longest psalm, 119, of the entire psalm book. But look at verse 22 of Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You've probably heard that before. It comes right out of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You've sung that before, right? And then look at the next phrase. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. There it is. Hosanna. O Lord, Hosanna, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you to send prosperity. Verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Almost verbatim, right? Of what we're reading in, in John chapter 12. What they were shouting. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. These words of... Praise and thanksgiving to the Lord would have been as familiar to these Jews as the Lord's Prayer is to you and I. The next phrase is not found in the Psalm 118. Even the King of Israel. We'll come back to this in a moment. But for now, let me ask you, What is the impression left in your mind of this large crowd's response to Jesus' arrival at the city of Jerusalem? Is it a funeral procession, or is it more like a Stanley Cup hometown victory parade? Jesus' so-called triumphal entry Incites a variety of responses. It was celebrated by this large crowd. Notice the first phrase of verse 14 Jesus, finding a donkey, sat on it. Finding a donkey? What is that all about? Like, how do you find a donkey? For those that are familiar with the synoptics account of this triumphal entry will know that there's a lot more behind this than just finding a donkey. But John's not interested in that. He just wants to put Jesus on a donkey and let you know that he's fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. In fact, he is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy that was told to the nation of Israel about four or five hundred years before Jesus was even born. An Old Testament prophecy that told the Jews how their Messiah would be introduced to the nation of Israel. And John quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Let me read from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. In fact, I'll read it in its entirety. You don't need to turn there. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fool of a donkey. The donkey was a symbol of both humility and peace. The polar opposite of a war horse. Can you imagine? The Romans that are standing watching this spectacle must have thought they were watching an episode of Saturday Night Live. It's actually a parody of what was a common practice for them in the midst of their own victory parades. You see, a Roman triumphal entry occurred when a conquering general who was responsible for the death of at least 5,000 of those considered to be the enemy and had somehow expanded the empire's land. He would then return to a ticker tape parade where he would display his trophies including the captured leaders. The parade would end at the Colosseum, where some of the captives would become the entertainment of the day, being forced to fight with wild beasts. William Barclay, in his commentary, writes this, A king came riding on a horse when he was bent on war. A A king came riding on an ass when he was coming in peace. Look at verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Thank goodness for the narrator. Because without the narrator... What happens in the minds of Jesus' closest follower would probably remain a mystery to us. How do you interpret these things his disciples did not understand at the first? In other words, they missed it, right? Perhaps they were distracted. After all, they didn't want to return to Jerusalem. Remember back at the end of John chapter 10, we were told that Jesus had eluded their grasp. And that's the grasp of those who had planned to kill him. As a result, he retreated along with his disciples to the other side of the Jordan. After receiving news of Lazarus' life-threatening illness, Jesus remained there for two more days. But then he decided to return to Bethany. In John chapter 11, verse 8, his disciples expressed their concern about these change of plans. Notice verse 8. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you now going there again? So picture it. They find themselves on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by a large crowd, shouting while waving palm branches and shouting things like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Perhaps these disciples were feeling a lot more like the secret servicemen and women who are assigned to protect the President of the United States. The New Living Translation reads, his disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. Or maybe they were just a little light when it comes to the minor prophets. After all, when was the last time you've heard a sermon based on a text from a minor prophet? Regardless, Jesus' so-called triumphal entry incited a variety of responses. It was overlooked by his disciples. They completely missed the significance of the donkey. The next response incited by Jesus' so-called triumphal entry is found in verses 17 and 18. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason, also, the people went went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. By the time Jesus had arrived at Bethany, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days already. Martha was consoled when she came out to the outskirts of Bethany and met with Jesus. Having been consoled, she returned home and told Mary that Jesus was asking for her. Mary got up to leave the house. The Jews who had come from the city of Jerusalem to to console Lazarus' two sisters followed her. But instead of going to the tomb, as they had assumed she would, they ended up meeting Jesus. Eventually, everyone does proceed to Lazarus' tomb, where Jesus commanded it to be opened, and then raised Lazarus from the dead. A miracle of all miracles. His command reversed human decomposition and restored the life of his friend. Maybe it was intended to foreshadow his own resurrection. But regardless, these many Jews, according to John chapter 11, verse 19, who were present when Lazarus was restored to life, became eyewitnesses. They are now part of the large crowd celebrating Jesus' approach to the city of Jerusalem. And they're not just part of the large crowd. They are bringing as many people with them as they can, telling and retelling the story of what they had witnessed at Bethany. Jesus' so-called triumphal entry. It incited a variety of responses. It was promoted by the witnesses of Lazarus' resurrection. One last group. Jesus' relentless opposition were also present. They couldn't help themselves. For them, to, that whole strategy of live and let live was just an impossibility. I can almost see them can't you? Prowling around the fringes of the crowd, slithering through the masses, maybe even perched on a high spot, overlooking, glaring, peering from their place of safety, mumbling and grumbling, cursing and complaining, all amongst themselves, of course. Look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after them. Jesus' triumphal entry was conceded by the Pharisees. So there you have it. Jesus' so-called triumphal entry was incited a variety of responses. It was celebrated by the large crowd. It was overlooked by his disciples. It was promoted by the witnesses of Lazarus' resurrection, and it was conceded by the Pharisees. But why? Why did Jesus' so called triumphal entry incite such a variety of responses? Because of their perceptions of him. You see, perceptions are powerful. What was the large crowd's perception of Jesus? How did they see him? The palm branches waving. Quotes from Psalm 118. By the way, did I mention that by Jesus' time, that quote from Psalm 118, he who comes in the name of the Lord, that was assumed to be referring to their Messiah. If there's any doubt about how they saw Jesus, just look at the very next phrase. The king of Israel. This large crowd was celebrating what they perceived to be a conquering king. The king of Israel was a common reference among the Jews by Jesus' day as well. A reference to their long-awaited Messiah. Remember back in John chapter 1, when Jesus, after he helped him to overcome his initial skepticism, Nathanael was able to conclude, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. John chapter 1, verse 49. Remember what happened following Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 when he took those five loaves and two fish? and fed 20,000 people? John chapter 6, verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to a mountain to be by himself. And then during his interrogation, Pilate, a pagan governor, asked the question straight up. Are you king of the Jews? Jesus, although not immediately, but before the conversation ended, conceded, You say correctly that I am a king. John chapter 18. Pilate then insisted that this inscription be fastened to the cross that Jesus hung on. Jesus the Nazarene. The king of the Jews. And he had it written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests, of course, objected. John chapter 19, verse 21. Do not write, The king of the Jews. But that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In other words, don't even think about it. It's not going to change, and that is my final answer. The crowds perceive Jesus to be their deliverer, the one sent by God to set them free, free at last from all the, their oppressive occupiers of this promised land. How about his disciples? What was their perception of Jesus? Remember, Jesus calls them in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they followed him. For almost two and a half years now. Through the good times and through the difficult, more challenging times. They stuck with him. And here again, we find them following him into the heart of enemy territory, deep into enemy territory. Their loyalty has been unquestionable. But on this occasion, it may be more significant at what they did not see, rather than what they saw. Without the narrator's help, as I mentioned earlier, we too may have missed connecting the dots here, But the disciples' perception of their leader on this occasion was clearly short-sighted. His disciples were overlooking a fulfilled prophecy, at least initially. Look again at verses 17 and 18. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. Those who had witnessed Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus from the dead would never forget that day that they stood outside of that tomb. They had heard Jesus' order with their own ears, Lazarus, come forth. And then they saw Lazarus, still bound in grave clothes, standing at the mouth of that tomb with their own eyes. We've all had those kinds of experiences. Memories etched in the recesses of our minds. We don't need an annual Remembrance Day to remember, lest we forget these witnesses of Lazarus' resurrection would forever see Jesus as a miracle worker. And as a result, would never tire of telling the old, old story of that unforgettable day on the outskirts of the town of Bethany. The witnesses of Lazarus' resurrection promoting a miracle worker. The world had gone after him. It was an obvious exaggeration, overstatement, but it does reveal the Pharisees' perception of their competitor. A few months earlier, they had eluded his grasp and left for the other side of the Jordan. They would probably, at the time, have considered that a small victory, at least he wasn't influencing people in their province. But then he returned and performed the miracle of all miracles, raised Lazarus from the dead. You know that Lazarus is never quoted in the New Testament, not one word. And probably he didn't have to speak. With every breath, he testified to this amazing miracle Jesus had brought him back from the dead to experience physical life. He was a living reminder of Jesus' supernatural power. Verse 10 leaks their plan for Lazarus. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death. Here, in verse 19, the Pharisees were conceding to a formidable opponent. Perceptions are powerful. Large crowds saw him as a conquering king to be celebrated. His disciples, they saw him as a fierce Fearless leader to be faithfully followed, maybe even protected. But in their short sightedness, they missed his self disclosing, conscious, premeditated fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. His, deci- his disciples overlooked a fulfilled prophecy. The witnesses of Lazarus' resurrection saw a miracle worker to be promoted. And the Pharisees saw a formidable opponent opponent to whom they conceded. You know, he, he really did appear to be winning the day. Their different perceptions resulted in a variety of responses. You see, perceptions are powerful. Powerful in the way that they shape our Actions and our reactions, our words and our deeds. So let me ask you, how do you see it? Perceptions are powerful. Our perceptions of Jesus will determine. Our responses to Him. Maybe that explains the Apostle Paul's unceasing prayer for believers who resided in the city of Ephesus that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that you may know Him more. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. You know, we can make that our personal prayer. Ask God to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know him more. I may have shared this last week, I'm not sure, but it comes from a book that I recently completed reading. Here's the quote. Transformation is not your goal. Transformation is not your goal. That's God's goal for you. Your personal goal is to get to know God and fear him. A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, wrote, what comes into your minds when you think about God is the most important thing about us. Why would that be? because perceptions are powerful. Let me close with Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. It reads as follows. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. Perceptions are powerful your perception of Jesus will determine your reactions to him. You see how we see him? What you're prepared to do to get to know him? They will determine how you act and react, your words and your deeds. We need to get to know Jesus. Father, thank you for this reminder Indeed, perspectives are powerful. They influence our actions and our reactions to you, to others, to the circumstances of our lives. Our perspectives of your person, your plans, and your purposes, of the world in which we live, of others, even of ourselves, need to be shaped by your word. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, we pray, so that as we study your word, we'll have a biblically informed perspective of you and all that this life has to offer. May we be teachable. You are the potter. We are the clay. Mold us into the image of Christ, we pray. By your power, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.